Why do some people ignore the Old Testament, even pastors? What does history teach us about what God is going to do in the future? And does it make any sense for Chick-fil-A to be closed on Sundays? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor, I'm a minister, and I read the Old Testament, which might not sound like much of a brag, but apparently it makes me more unique than it used to. Christianity Today recently ran a story with this headline, Sorry Old Testament, Most theologians don't use you. The story begins, Do you ever feel that pastors are always preaching on the same Bible verses? Or that theologians always seem to reference the Gospels and Paul, but rarely the Old Testament? You're likely right, according to a new study of the hundred Bible verses most frequently used in systematic theology books. Faith Life, the organization behind Logos Bible Software, examined more than 830 verses across more than 300 works to produce the list. Unsurprisingly, the New Testament gets a lot more use than the Old Testament, with references to Paul's letters making especially frequent appearances. The Gospel of John, the Gospel of Matthew, and the Book of Hebrews are also frequently cited. By contrast, only nine of the top 100 most cited Bible passages in systematic theology come from the Old Testament, with Genesis accounting for eight of them, and Isaiah is the ninth. And that's where I have to stop, because the story cuts off there if you're not a Christianity, Christianity Today subscriber. And I canceled my subscription to them years ago because I, th- I thought they were turning into garbage. But but anyway, let's talk here about what we do know based on what I could read there. It said in the hundred most frequently cited b- verses in the Bible, only nine of them come from the Old Testament. And of those nine, all of them come from Genesis and Isaiah. No books in the Old Testament other than those even crack the top 100. So just imagine that for a minute. If you look at the Bible as a whole, the Old Testament, it's like 75 or 80% of the Bible, and yet it makes up less than 10% of the most cited verses in all of Scripture. Christians don't study enough Old Testament, and pastors don't preach enough Old Testament. And as I said, the vast majority of the Bible is Old Testament. So if you're a pastor and if you're preaching the whole Word of God, most of your sermons, statistically, are going to be Old Testament. If 90% of your sermons are New Testament, I'd say you're not really preaching all of God's word because even the New Testament says that the Old Testament is supposed to inform our faith. First Corinthians 10, 6, it says, now these things took place. Now, what things is it talking about? The history of Israel as recorded in the New Testament. It says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So the Old Testament is supposed to teach us things about our spiritual walk. Now, most pastors don't care as much about the Old Testament because they find it really difficult to dig deep in those books and bring out truths and information that would benefit our lives today, because doing that is hard work. It's much easier just to preach something that are some quotes from Jesus and relate that to our Christian life than to go digging around in Deuteronomy to find something. That requires a lot more diligence and harder work. And that's why the Old Testament doesn't get quoted as much as the New Testament. And I'd have to imagine that hardly anybody 
is quoting Ezekiel 20, and that's what we're going to be in today. It's not the most exciting chapter in all of Scripture, and uh, <laughs> in fact, I'm thankful I was able to do an interview with my friend Chet Morton for the past couple of weeks on, on the program here, because I, I really did need that extra bit of time to crack this chapter open. When I approach any chapter of this book of the Bible, one of my first questions I always like to ask is, what makes this chapter unique? What would the Bible be missing if this chapter wasn't here? What new information does this chapter teach us about God that I didn't know before? And I don't really sit down to record one of these programs until I figured all that out. Uh, back when I worked for a church, um, I, I didn't teach my Sunday school. I didn't preach a sermon until I had answered those questions about the text that I was studying. And there were some days where I stayed at the office late at night because I wanted to figure all that out. Sometimes I'd come home for lunch and I'd just kind of sit there silently chewing my food at the table thinking on what I'd been studying. And uh, my wife would ask me what I was thinking about. And I would I would sometimes say, you know, this chapter I'm working on, it's a tough nut to crack. And, and that was the story here with Ezekiel 20 as well. It was a tough nut to crack, but I think I finally got a grasp of it. And I can't wait to share that with you today. In fact, it so now, now this is uh, this is a long chapter of Ezekiel. I'm breaking up this chapter into multiple uh, lessons. And so we're I, I haven't decided yet if I'm going to try to run two programs just this week, just to try to kind of like get through it all a little bit quicker. But anyway, I do hope you'll stick around for it because this chapter, it teaches us some stuff about God that you don't hear emphasized very often. And this chapter might even cause you to walk away with some questions about God that you didn't have going into it. But I believe if you'll really sit in what it's saying, it's, it's going to bring you into a deeper understanding of who God is. And that will happen when we take our time to really dive deep into the text. That's what we're going to do today. So grab your Bible. Let's take a look at the unique and challenging and new truths that Ezekiel 20 has for us. We'll start here at verse 1, of course. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers. We'll stop there at verse 4. One thing I love about the detailed chronology of Ezekiel is you can actually trace it back to an exact date in history because it's so precise in how it dates this book. This conversation took place on August 14th, 591 BC. That's just really cool to me. You know, the Ezekiel, um, you can actually trace it back to the exact day. And this also shows that he has been a prophet now for about two years at this point. And I call this section Israel's arraignment. An arraignment is whenever you bring someone in to court to answer a criminal charge. And so this starts with the Israelites approaching God. It said with an inquiry, it doesn't say specifically what they were inquiring, but as usual, they come to God to ask a question. They got more than they bargained for with his response because he basically lays out a bunch of problems that he has had with Israel ever since its founding. There is one interesting theory thrown out for what these Israelites were asking about. Um, it involves a cross-reference with Jeremiah 28. Over in that chapter, there's a false prophet named Hananiah, and he was prophesying that the Jews would be free from Nebuchadnezzar in two years. Jeremiah was saying it was going to be 70 years. Hananiah was saying it would be two years. 
And so at this moment in Ezekiel 20, it has been about two years because that book is taking place at about the same time as Ezekiel is. And so perhaps people were coming to inquire of God to ask if Hananiah's prophecy was about to come true. And uh, alas, it, it was wishful thinking because false prophets, they always tell people what they want to hear, not necessarily the truth. And people tend to believe what they want to hear, you know, regardless of whether it's true. So Ezekiel is a true prophet. He returns with God's actual words, and they don't get the answer that they were looking for. And from here, this chapter turns into a history lesson. God is going to review Israel's history. He's going to do it from a standpoint of idolatry. And so basically, it's talking about all the times that Israel has turned to idols and forsook God. And he's going to focus on three eras of Israel's history. And there's been a number of commentaries that have pointed out the parallels between this chapter and also Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin in Acts 7. And I'm thinking about covering that next time because um, so many commentaries have pointed out the parallels here. But God says in verse 4, arraign the people. That's probably a good understanding of what it means there when it says, will you judge them? So he's going to arraign the people. So now let's get into our first of three main sections that are covered in this chapter. And as I mentioned, Ezekiel is going to restate um, Israel's history. He's going to talk about three different eras. He's going to talk about Israel and Egypt, then later Israel in the wilderness, and finally Israel in the promised land. He's going to talk about how Israel rebelled at every available opportunity. So we'll start with Ezekiel 20 verse 5 and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land I had, that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived and whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And I'm going to pause there. Because this is actually, that's the first section there. It's talking about Israel's rebellion in Egypt. And so a few notes on this. God says that he swore three times right there in the first few verses. He says, I swore I would bring them out of Egypt. And he did. God does what he said he will do. Then later on, God said he swore he would judge them. That's a key point. It's going to come up again in, in a few lessons from now. The fact that God still did what he said he would do. If you look at the past... And the fact that God said he would do what he said he would do in the past, it's proof that God will do what he says he will do in the future. I hope that made sense. We're supposed to look to the past and learn from it. I did a study of the book of uh, of this book of the Bible back in 2015, 2016. I kind of did a in, not as in-depth as I'm doing right here with you, but I just did a, a an extensive survey of the book of Ezekiel. And I remember whenever I came to chapter 20, this is what I wrote in my Bible. History is God's answer to man's questions. And you know, that really sums up this chapter. They come to inquire of God about the present or about the future. And God answers by pointing to the past. 
the past is there for us to learn from. You can't dwell on the past and wish you could go back to it all the time. That's not what God is saying. He's saying learn from it as you move forward. Now, the next part of this is about idolatry. Israel had adopted some idol worship while in Egypt. They felt conquered by Egypt, so they worshipped Egypt's gods. And that made some logical sense, you know, in a way. Um, (laughs) Apparently, Egypt's gods were more powerful than Israel's god because Egypt had Israel in captivity. So that would seem apparent to many of them. But then when the 10 plagues happened with Moses, that showed that God was more powerful than Egypt's gods. In fact, each of those 10 plagues, they actually correspond to one of Egypt's gods. They worshiped the Nile, so God turned it to blood. They worshiped fly gods and frog gods, so God sent swarms of frogs and flies. History teaches us that God is mightier than any false god that the people will come up with. The next section is called rebellion in the wilderness. And it's about the next phase of Israel's history. And so we'll read verses 10 through 17. But as we go through these sections today, you may notice a pattern to God's complaints in this arraignment. There are five or six elements that occur each time. And so I'm going to read them to you here. And then as we go through the verses, I want to highlight them as they show up. So this is like a cycle that keeps repeating in each one of these sections. And here's the cycle. One, the Lord reveals himself. Two, God challenges the people to exclusive devotion, which means to worship him alone. Three, Israel rebels. Four, wrath is threatened. And then five, wrath is deferred. So it means that the the wrath doesn't happen right at that time, that God's going to give them another chance, basically. So that's that's a pattern that Israel kept repeating. They learned more about God. They were challenged to worship him. Eventually, they rebelled, which is always by worshiping idols. God said that he would destroy them. And then God withholds his judgment for one reason or another. And this cycle just repeats all throughout chapter 20 um, as Ezekiel is looking back on Israel's history. So let's read it now in verses 10 through 17. It says, so I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. Let's stop right there. So the Lord has revealed himself to Israel. He has proven himself by bringing them out of Egypt. He's proven his reality and his authority and his preeminence. And so um, that that's what he has done through this process of like what you'd say, why are they in Egypt in the first place? Well, God is revealing himself to them through that trial that they went through as a nation. And then, you know, that's a reason that we go through hard things. God reveals himself to us in deeper ways as we go through hard things. And so Israel now knows um Israel now knows God a lot better because of the Egypt experience, way better than they would have known God if they hadn't gone through it. Verse 11, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So right there, that's a challenge to exclusive devotion. Part two of the cycle, God challenged Israel to worship him and his own ways. And then he also mentions Sabbaths there. And I want to talk more about Sabbaths later. Verse 13. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths, they greatly profaned. So that's part three right there. Israel rebels. And that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, specifically, you could read about Israel's wilderness wanderings in the book of Numbers. They rebel against God m- multiple times in there. 
It says, then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. That's part four of the cycle. God threatens his wrath, threatens to wipe them out. But why did he not wipe them out? Why did he not do it this time? Well, let's keep reading to verse 17. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eye spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. So it says they came really close to getting destroyed throughout the book of Numbers, but God kept relenting. For the sake of his name and his reputation, God relented. God wanted the world to know who he was. And all that stuff he did for them, you know, with the 10 plagues and parting the Red Sea, you know, all that stuff God did to get them out of Egypt, it would have been for nothing if Israel had to be wiped out in the desert. We never would have known about the Israelites. We never would have known about all that God did for them if he had just wiped them out. So it really wasn't because of Israel's goodness that God spared them. He did it for the sake of, of his own name. In human terms, we might say that they just kind of got lucky. Um, and I, w- I want to go back to verse 12 for a minute. It had this line in it that I found interesting. It says, uh, I, God says, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Well, that kind of got my gears turning as I looked at that because I, I was like, well, what's the link between Sabbaths and sanctification? So Sabbaths are once a week. When Israel is told to do no work and to just rest, okay, so we know about the Sabbaths, sanctification is the process of being made holy. So I'm kind of looking at that. I'm like, well, what's the link there between Sabbaths and being made holy? Like, what is it about resting one day a week that makes us holier? And so I thought on that, and here's where I landed on that. Um, So sanctify, it means to make holy. Making something holy means to set it apart. And the practice of the Sabbath, which is resting once a week, this was an idea that set Israel apart. If you think about it, this isn't what the other nations were doing. They had no qualms about working seven days a week. And if you think about ancient times, these were agrarian societies. They, they relied heavily on farming, producing food, hunting, having enough food and supplies to make it to the next day. They didn't have refrigerators or freezers. They couldn't store food long term. So they had to have a continuous stream of food coming in just so that they could live. You didn't necessarily have food for the next week unless you got it this week. You just had to constantly work to even just survive in those days. And then God comes along and he says, hey, guys, take one day off each week and do no work. Don't prepare meals. Don't even gather sticks for a fire. Nothing. Now, if you were going to do that, that would require some faith, right? Like this required a life adjustment for Israel. It really didn't make logical sense for people in those days. Other nations would look at them and they'd say, that's weird. (laughs) But God meant it. He said, make your food for the Sabbath on the day before so you don't have to do any work to make it on the Sabbath. It's kind of like Chick-fil-A not being open on Sundays. You know, and I know they're, they're following their interpretation of the Sabbath command here by taking one day off a week. But I mean, who else has ever gotten out of church and you just wanted to go eat some Chick-fil-A right then? <laughs> you know, doesn't that happen to all of us? And I think it's because we walk out of church, you know, we're, we're, we're feeling spiritual. And whenever you're feeling spiritual, you just feel a natural draw in your inward spirit 
to go to Chick-fil-A because it's such a heavenly place, right? You, you want to go get in Truett Cathy's presence. And, uh, and you know, I'm sure if you read the Old Testament, whenever it spoke of the priests getting the anointing oil, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the anointing oil was the same thing as Chick-fil-A sauce. Like if you go read it in the original Hebrew, I can't speak Hebrew, so I can't confirm that for myself. But I mean, just ask a Jew sometime. Um, so I get out of church and I just really want to go anoint some chicken nuggets with that sauce. But I can't do it because Chick-fil-A is over here trying to follow the Bible and take one day off each week. But let's think about how logical it is for a second to take Sundays off. If you're running a business, you could be open seven days a week and you'll probably make more money than if you're just open six days a week, right? That's just basic math. And especially if you're a fast food place, especially a national chain of fast food places, every single one of them is open seven days a week because that makes more money than if you're open six days a week, right? Isn't that just logical? If you were going to take a day off out of any day of the week, you'd probably want to take off one of those low traffic days. You wouldn't want to take off Sundays because that's one of the prime days for food establishments to make some money. That's a weekend. That's a, that's the church day. So it's especially busy, especially at lunchtime. You got that church crowd coming in and they're dispersing out into the city and they're looking for that spiritual soul food, that manna from heaven. And in the year of our Lord, 2023, that can only be found at Chick-fil-A. And yet Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. One of the most profitable days in their whole industry of fast food. And yet, despite being open one day less than everyone else, they make more money than just about all those other fast food places. And I can't explain it. <laughs> it doesn't make logical sense. And they have always done that. Um, and despite that fact, I can never remember to get my extra nuggets on Saturday so that can tide me over until Sunday passes. You know, it's 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 like, you know, God told the Israelites to go gather twice as much manna on the day before the Sabbath so they would have enough food to get them through. And yet for me, every time Sunday, Saturday comes around, I always forget to buy double nuggets. And I don't think I'm ever going to learn. And I don't know how to explain why Chick-fil-A is so profitable in human terms. I mean, I look at it and I'm like, well, it must be the blessing of God because it makes no logical sense that they would close on such a high traffic day as, sat as Sunday and yet still be making so much money, more than just about any other fast food place. And it doesn't make sense for Israel either to receive this directive of taking one day off each week from work. It must have made no logical sense to them. And like I said, the other nations would look at it and they would have thought, Israel was weird. And that was the point. Israel was holy. Holy means set apart. Holy means different. When you behave in a holy way, you're acting differently from everyone else. And sometimes God's instructions on holiness make sense, like not worshiping idols, not committing murder. Those rules on holiness, they make sense to me. But then you have some about not eating shrimp on your salad or not mixing two different types of thread in your tunics. And it's it's not so apparent to me what those rules have to do with holiness, except that being holy means being different from everyone else. And whether you understand all of God's laws or not, you still have to follow them because you've been called to be holy. You aren't called to understand. You're called to be holy. So God says, I gave you my Sabbaths to sanctify you, to make you holy. 
Now, all the old covenant laws, they don't always apply to those of us in the new covenant. We get to eat shrimp on our salads. We can have however many different types of threads we want in our tunics. And if Chick-fil-A wanted to, I don't think it would be a sin for them to be open on Sunday. We're in a new covenant. And I someday I hope Chick-fil-A realizes that. <laughs> or someday I hope I remember to get double nuggets on Saturday. But I don't think either of those things are likely to happen. Anyway, Sabbaths, they don't necessarily apply to us in the new covenant, but they do have a new covenant meaning. The Sabbath means rest. And our Sabbath in the new covenant is Jesus. Hebrews 3 and 4 explain this. When it comes to our salvation, we rest in the work of Christ. We don't work for our salvation. Jesus did all the work. That is the spiritual significance of the Sabbaths from the Old Testament. So how does that make us holy today? Because this is something different from all the other religions in the world. Every other religion out there has you doing something to earn your way into heaven. In Islam, they have the five pillars. In every single religion out there, they have something that you do. And yet in Christianity, it's a religion where you don't, where you can't do anything to earn your way into heaven. If you even try to work your way into heaven, mixing works with faith, mixing works with the gospel. If you even try that, you're lost. You putrefy your faith. You're not holy. And that's what Israel had done with their faith. They had putrefied it. They weren't following God's Sabbaths, specifically the Sabbath of the land. They didn't rest the land. According to a commentary by Charles Lee Feinberg, Sabbaths were, quote, a sign that they were Israelites and were being set apart unto the worship and service of God alone. But they didn't follow the Sabbaths, so they wrecked their faith. And if you don't trust in the work of Jesus entirely, you'll wreck your faith. I do have a mailbag comment today. This is, um, I guess it's anonymous here, it's, but it's, it's on the episode a few episodes back where I was talking about the point of no return for America. And uh, that was Ezekiel series part 30. So, and I was talking about, um, and I was talking about how I really feel like um, some of the political leadership in our country right now, including even our president, are heavily influenced by um, evil spirits. And I was talking about some of the things they do and and why I why I feel that way. But anyway, uh, so we got a comment on that that said it's not dementia, it's dementia, you know, demoncha, dementia. Which um, I th- think that's a pretty good word for it, actually. I'm going to try to maybe I'll steal that and use that sometimes. And the comment also says that weird grin is what I call a demonic rictus. And it's true, there is something you can see in someone's face when they are being. Heavily, heavily influenced by demons, not necessarily saying possessed even, but just heavily influenced. And so I was talking about how you can really tell when someone's influenced by demonic powers based on their reactions to things. But this comment's also pointing out, you can just kind of see it in someone's face. Like, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I've been around people before who were who were in deep with demons. And there was always something, you know, there's like something fidgety with their eyes. A lot of times there's always something going on with their eyes. They'll try not to make eye contact. It's like they're just constantly trying to look at other things around the room. Um, or you can see signs of it sometimes when someone's being controlled by demons, you know, whether they're literally possessed or not, but you can really see it sometimes in the facial expressions too. So Demonic Rictus, that's a good name for it. Um, a really good book to read on this subject for, for anyone out there who's interested. Look up one called The Day Satan Called. It's by Bill Scott. 
And this is an amazing book for anyone who wants to understand more about how demons operate and how they control people. I started reading this. I got through all 200 pages in like two days. Okay. I like, you can't put this book down. Everybody I know who's read it, they all said the same thing. Like they could not stop reading. They could not put it down. If you get that book and if you read it, I mean, start it early in the day. If you start it late at night, it's just going to keep you up all night. I'm not, and I'm, I don't, I would say that more about this book than any book I've ever read before. And, and me personally, like maybe, maybe this is why it was stood out so much to me as I have a few personal stories that are very similar to what Bill Scott talks about in that book. So like I, as I read it, I can attest that everything in that book, it's very real. And, uh, and I'm not afraid of demons. Like I think demons are 100% real. And I say, people, we need to be praying because prayer is one of our most powerful weapons and our, our prayers do so much to, to keep the evil forces away. So, um, that, that I think that's what these books will drive you to do is to pray every day. And whenever you do, do what Jesus said, pray, deliver us from evil. Or as some translations will say, the evil one. It's because our prayers will hold Satan back and prayer works. And I think I've really talked enough for today, but I want to keep charging ahead in this section of, of scripture. I don't want this episode to get like two hours long. So here's what I'm thinking is I want to, I'm going to go ahead and finish out this section of scripture for this week. Um, but I'm not finishing out the whole section today. I'm going to just try to pop out another episode uh, for, if I can, I'm going to try to do it for later in this week where I'll finish up this section of scripture. Um, if I can't get it done this week, it'll just have to be next Monday. But the reason I'm going to go ahead and get it out as quick as I can, I'm not trying to drag out this book of Ezekiel, <laughs> guys. I'm honestly not. It's just like, as I dig into it, there's so many hidden treasures in the text that I, I just want to take my time to to uncover all those as we go through. So I've been trying to get through one chapter of Ezekiel each month. I'm really not trying to drag it out any more than I have to. So um, if I can, I'll go ahead and try to get another episode out for like Thursday um, to finish out this section on Israel's history. And then next week, I'm planning to do an episode on Acts chapter 7, because apparently there's a lot of parallels between this chapter and that chapter. So I'm going to step over there. I'm going to see what Acts 7 is all about. And if you have a question on this chapter, just leave a comment or shoot an email to us, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. It's also down there in the show notes. And I'm always happy to take questions or recommendations on what you would like to hear about in the future. And uh, and please make sure you're subscribed on whatever platform it was that you found this episode. I really appreciate the subscriptions on there too. So wherever you like to listen, make sure you're a subscriber uh, before you go. And so today, just to recap what we talked about, history is God's answer to man's questions. The Israelites came to Ezekiel inquiring about what was going on. We don't know specifically what they asked, but Ezekiel, or I mean, I should say it's God speaking through Ezekiel. He took them on a journey through Israel's history through a lens of their inclination toward idolatry. And, you know, I got a little sidetracked talking there about fast food, but we ended on this thought of holiness. Holiness means to be set apart, to obey God. And we don't always understand why God instructs us to do certain things, but we aren't called to understand. We're called to be holy. And holy means being weird. We're set apart. We're not like everyone else. Other people will think you're weird whenever you're holy. You won't do all the things that they do. You won't laugh at all the things that they laugh at. And I, me personally, I'm really good at being weird. 
like being weird, that comes very naturally to me. But holiness doesn't come so natural. Holiness goes against our flesh. Holiness doesn't always seem logical. But again, we aren't called to understand. We're called to be holy. Come back next time to finish this section of Ezekiel 20. And thanks for listening to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you to get double nuggets on Saturday. Oh, 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 oh,